When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. I'm Michael Phillips. What I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. Checkpoints go up at 15 miles. Your fugitive's name is Dr. Richard Kimball. It wasn't the most acclaimed film of 1993, but it was maybe the most improbably acclaimed. The Fugitive, a summer action thriller adapted from a 60s TV series that went on to be nominated for seven Oscars, including Best Picture. This week, The Fugitive at 30 and the top five films of 1993 ahead on Film Spotting. I didn't kill my wife! I don't care! Welcome to Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. Adam is away this week. You you can search every farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, dog house. You will not find him. We hope to find him and bring him back soon. But this means that joining me is the Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips. Welcome back to the show, Michael. Well, thanks, Josh. I, I think there is a reason the fugitive is not set in Iowa, and because it just doesn't <laughs> feel it wouldn't feel the same to me to go to Des Moines instead of Chicago. That's my so feeling. you're saying we should start the search for Adam in Iowa. I'd like your thinking. <laughs> yeah, I, would, I would. You can just go to the first campus you see. You'll find him somewhere. <laughs> Good idea. Later in the show, we're going to revisit a top five films of 1993 list that Adam and I did for the 20th anniversary of that movie year. That was back in 2013, of course. I can say with some confidence that Jane Campion's The Piano was on my list, probably at the very top. Other than that, though, Things are a little fuzzy. It was 10 years ago. Any titles come to mind for you, Michael, in the year that was Spielberg's Jurassic Park and Schindler's List? Are those the two that come to yeah, mind first I mean, from 93? Or do you have other favorites you think yeah, of? Yeah, pretty good year, you know? Look, I, haven't see, I haven't seen some of these in a long time, but when I think of the, uh, there's, there's a handful of Clint Eastwood films that I really consider to be part of his best streak in a perfect world from 1993 is one of them i i still adore groundhog day for a lot of oh, reasons yeah. i think joe dante's matinee is hilarious and i love seeing that every so often uh you know th- those are those, yeah and you know what the fugitive is one of my favorite year- movies of that year so i'm thrilled to be talking about it today all right well we'll get to that top five of 1993 later in the show but right now let's get to the fugitive at 30. I came home, there was a man in my house. He had an artificial arm. Are you saying that I killed my wife? Are you saying that I crushed her skull and that I shot her? 
Michael, you recently interviewed the fugitive director, Andrew Davis, for the Chicago Tribune, where I learned something I hadn't heard before about the movie. Based on the 1960s TV series, The Fugitive stars Harrison Ford as Dr. Richard Kimball, an escaped convict out to prove he didn't murder his wife while on the run from Tommy Lee Jones, U.S. Marshal Sam Gerard. In an early version of the script, Davis told you, Gerard was revealed to be behind the death of Kimball's wife, giving him very personal reasons for pursuing the doctor. It's hard to imagine that scenario because the heart of the fugitive, as producer Sam tapped into when he devised the latest film spotting poll, which we'll get to later in the show, is this uniquely adversarial relationship between Kimball and Gerard. These two come to respect each other, but they're pitted against each other. So the suspense lies equally in whether or not Gerard will catch Kimball as it does in whether Gerard will come to believe in Kimball's innocence. In your mind, Michael, is this relationship what made The Fugitive such a surprising phenomenon? The reason this relatively modest action drama had such an impact in 1993. The movie snagged seven Oscar nominations and a Best Supporting Actor win for Tommy Lee Jones. It was number two at the box office for that year, despite not coming out until August 6. Roger Ebert gave it four out of four stars, writing that The Fugitive has the standards of an earlier, more classic time, when acting, character, and dialogue were meant to stand on their own. What was the secret to The Fugitive's success, Michael, and does it stand up to our standards today? Okay, well, I have to quote uh, the musical Damn Yankees and the song A Little Brains, A Little Talent, because I think The Fugitive has a little brains, actually a lot of talent, and a hell of a lot of luck going for it that I don't know Mm. if it would be replicatable. Um, All I know is that it also holds up like gangbusters today, and I've heard that from too many different types of moviegoers lately, especially on this 30th year anniversary who, you know, all kinds of folks who have maybe loved it forever, maybe have actually hadn't seen it until this year. And there's something extremely satisfying about this mixture of a lot of what would look on paper to be very surefire ingredients based on a really popular 1960s TV show. Does that mean anything to 20-year-olds in 1993? No, it means nothing. But it means something to their parents. (laughs) And the premise on paper is just terrifically simple and propulsive, right? You know, wrong man running for his life, trying to clear his name, you know, wrongly accused of murder, being pursued by this Inspector Javert, Les Miserables type character. And it's it's just a wonderful kind of two-track, you know, narrative, wonderful. And, uh, you know, that that works great, I think. It's, it's also, it's very, I think by... 2023 standards, it is full of little moments, character details, scenes that don't necessarily get too nervous about, well, we got to move this forward. We got to keep it moving. We got to keep it moving. This is why the movie works to me, Josh. I think the fact that Tommy Lee Jones's character has not one, but like, you know, three interesting sidekicks that they actually have a lot of kind of loose, funny, off the cuff dialogue. Uh, The fact that you do, uh, you know, you get an awful lot done in the first 15, 20 minutes of this film in terms of, okay, what, what's Richard Kimball's life like? What, what sort of, you know, how quickly can we establish, you know, with the, the incredible jam he's in? And, you know, that's a really rough, sobering scene where you, the discovery of the body uh, in the apartment is, is, you know, established. And it's not, it's not glossed over. It's, it's also not 
it's not fussy or or nervous about painting Kimball as a really anguished character, really broken up by what's happening so quickly. And then by then, you actually feel like, okay, I've got it. I I I, I can relate to this old. It's, it's a classic movie situation, but I can sort of re- relate to it anew. And by then, you're on the <laughs> you're on the prison bus about to tumble down the ravine about to get creamed by the freight train uh, you know and and from there it's like the movie could do nothing but card tricks for two hours after that and it probably still would have been a hit because that first 20 minutes in, up to and including all that action is just kind of staggeringly good it's also a great mixture of practical effects and and you know not digital but you know some of the some of the kind of classic a little bit of uh of a you know rear projection here and there, but but it's just I don't know it's just got it, it it's got a lot of a lot of stuff that the technique may not be done ever again like that because it'd all be green screen today. But you can learn so much from looking at how the first twenty minutes of that movie works. I think, and it would work again today. Interestingly, twenty minutes is right about the mark where Tommy Lee Jones comes in as well, and we will we will get to him specifically. But I had forgotten the first section of the movie that you're describing, Michael. That it was that extended, and it's almost its own mini film, intercut with the arrest and the flashbacks to the incident, and really lets us sit in this experience that Kimball is having, the disorientation before we get to the actual escape and the meat of the film, what essentially the film is about. So I had forgotten that structure. I agree. I do think it works quite well. And I also agree with you. You say a little brains, a little talent. You quote that. And you also use the word after that that came to mind for me immediately when this movie was over. How deeply satisfying. And I think those things are related as you suggested. This is not a movie that I'm looking back necessarily. And I know, as you say, people have great affection for it and see it as an action masterpiece or necessarily Mm -hmm. necessarily a landmark of an era. But what it does have is a little more brains, a little more talent, and that is completely enough to make it so deeply satisfying. And there's something about the very modesty there built into that that I do think does make it stand apart from today's era. When we look at the precise location here being set in Chicago almost exclusively, there are a few sequences outside, but it returns to the city and has that precise location. It has two main characters, essentially, and we're following their predicaments and their arcs and how they're related to each other. Basically, when you think about it in terms of today's action films, there's none of the cosmic bombast that is demanded and expected of our action films today. You know, this is not it's not a gritty little indie thriller made with a handheld camera, but it's somewhere in between those two things. It's just this, again, deeply satisfying, well-made studio drama for an adult audience um, that ticks all those boxes we expect going into a movie like this. It doesn't necessarily surprise us in any extreme ways, but it doesn't really disappoint us either. And I think there's something of immense value to that and lasting value. I, I think for me, that's one of the things that stood out in terms of why it still registers as an enjoyable experience today, even though it looks quite different from similar action films we're seeing in theaters. Well, and I think I think the look of it, if you just look at how the train bus collision is handled, how some of that 
technique works and works beautifully. And the fact that they spent a million bucks to do a one shot, they had to get it right on one shot. I mean, worth every dime, you know, I mean, I think there's no question about it. And these days, of course, you would see typically just a, a, a scads of green screen and you would have action, uh, kind of larded onto the movie that would be far less <laughs> earthbound than most of what we see in the fugitive. Now I'm not, I'm not saying the fugitive is, you know, without kind of, I guess some excess here and there. And I, honestly, the people that made the film, Josh, I don't, I really doubt that they would say it's a model of screenwriting form because they, they were winging it so much. I mean, they were rewriting every, every other day they would get new pages and, you know, I've written about this in the trip, but Tommy Lee Jones in in those scenes in the Hilton, where they're in the basement of the Hilton, downtown Chicago, and Gerard is finally confronting Kimball. There's a lot of desperate sort of expedient uh, dialogue just designed to kind of tie up loose ends that were created by, you know, rewrites three days earlier and like plot points that they didn't even, weren't even sure they were getting straight the first time. And Tommy Lee Jones, the one time I interviewed him, not an easy task, by the way. Um, uh, he, the only time he warmed up was talking about what a desperate, uh, pathetic mess he thought the fugitive was when they were filming that particular scene. He, you know, and he's told this to Rolling Stone too, but he told me, he said, I, I thought I would literally never work again after screaming a bunch of exposition to laundry bags in the basement of the Hilton, just simply to kind of cover the screenplay's ass. And, 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 it was, and I don't love that scene. Actually. I don't love a lot of the last, you know, that, that, that wrap up because it's just, a, it's a kind of physical violence that I think is less interesting than like almost everything else in the movie. I mean, the rest of the movie is really kind of kinetic and it moves places and it's just exciting and kind of, kind of, you know, kind of juicy all the way through. Uh, and then the end is like, okay, <laughs> it's okay. But I do, yeah, I would love, agree. I, but I love what saves it. I think Josh is what you're getting at. It's just about how these two characters work. The grudging, not apology, but the grudging respect, I guess, and admiration yeah. that Gerard shows for what Kimball has done to clear his name is what saves it. And it actually feels right. It's, it doesn't feel like a change of, a, uh, an expedient change of character for a, a, a maniac because he doesn't play, Tommy Lee Jones doesn't play him like a monomaniacal, you know, kind of wild eyed, obsessive character. He's just quietly very good at his job and really doesn't want to hear anything that's going to get in the way of it. Put that gun down! Put that gun down! Now! Hands up! Over the head! Turn around! Richard, do you want to get shot? Ford responded very well to those few scenes he actually has with Jones. But, I mean, who could not respect the sight and the rhythm that these two tough guys have, because they, they seem like genuine, you know, authentically grumpy tough guys in a, <laughs> acting out kind of a, you know, a, 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 an old standard formula, but just done so well and directed really well by Andy Davis. I just think this is the kind of Hollywood direction that is, is hard to find just clean, uncluttered, nice long takes when you don't even notice them just walking around a crime scene uh, you know, of the parade sequence, which they filmed on the fly spontaneously. Um, you know, not, not, not a big deal. You know, it, it's not like a big showcase, but it was going on. It made sense. 
um, I, I don't know. There's just a lot of really happy accidents that that kind of gave it not just a little brains and a little talent, but a lot of luck. And uh, but in the end, deserved every every bit of it. I'm I'm just really pleased that this is that it fits the category of a Chicago movie because it's just, it takes one slot away from a John Hughes movie. I don't think deserves it or, you know, <laughs> blues brothers, I'm well, sure is everybody's favorite Chicago movie in a lot of ways, but I, I just, for me, I'm always going to vote something like the fugitive or maybe the untouchables instead, just because they're frankly just better made films. Well, and it makes clever use of the locations. It, it integrates them into the story. It doesn't just pick, you know, something that's a landmark and then plopping a scene in it. It's actually making use of the locale. And this speaks to another aspect, um, you know, that you were saying, maybe not the, the sexiest elements of filmmaking, but crucial elements. How about blocking with action and the way Davis handles those sorts of things? I think of the sequence where Kimball is going to interview uh, a suspected man who's in jail. He he wants to figure out if this is the guy that he's been pursuing. And right. we have him leaving that interview, going down a set of stairs, and you have Gerard coming up because he realized that's where Kimball headed, another set of stairs. And just the handling of the camera and the positioning of them, again, with movement, are they going to run into each other? Are they not? When will Gerard spot Kimball? What does that look like? Or even take a little moment, here we're back to the Chicago streets, you see the L in so many of these shots, which again, a lot of movies just feel like it's requisite. They have to put the L in here, but I feel like Davis and the filmmakers are wondering how can we add this to the tension of the scene? And so there's a little moment where Sykes, the one-armed man played by Andreas Katsulas, mm. at this point is searching for Kimball as well. And he spots him across the street, I believe under the L tracks. And the way Kimball comes into focus as he's moving one way and Sykes turns and spots him, just little mm -hmm, details mm -hmm. like that are the, the things we're both talking about, I think, in terms of unassuming filmmaking, but crucial filmmaking choices to keep us in the action, to keep the propulsiveness going, and again, using those locales. But yeah, you were talking about Jones there. Let's get to Jones. And I do love that this movie ends with the two of them, Ford and Jones, together in the back of a cop car. That's where it needed to end. If I have a major disappointment about this revisit, it was that sequence before that that you were talking about where we get... Ford and the actual bad guy played by Jerome Crab. Um, basically, these are two middle-aged doctors fist fighting for about 20 minutes. It feels That's like a very long scene. I agree. Long. That is not yeah. up to power with what we've gotten before. The script kind of needed to bring us to that point. Not a strength of the film. So I'm glad we do have that last moment that returns us to Jones and Ford. And you mentioned what Jones thought of this might do to his career because he wasn't confident in the script or how things were going. Looking back at it now, I'm thankful Jones didn't get trapped by this role, that he was able to do something much different but enjoyable like Men in Black and then be in a masterpiece like the Coen Brothers' No Country for Old Men and such a crucial anchor to that film. So I'm just glad looking back that he did do some sort of Gerard parts after this in other movies, but he didn't get trapped by that because I got to tell you, Michael, as much as I could quote, like anyone else, some of these lines about the hen house and the dog house, I underestimated how much scenery chewing he is doing in this movie. And it is at once ridiculous, but also I feel so crucial to the film because it could dull 
and drag a bit. That's why I think we talked about 20 minutes in. It sort of picks up to life. Even though we're already engaged, Jones does bring a new element to it by just devouring what lines he has. And then I have to think, you mentioned how they were improvising a lot of this, just starting to shout things to his team of investigators and seeing if they land. There's a line here, the opera ain't over till the big dog howls. At that point, <laughs> you just got to think he's he's trying anything to see what sticks. And while it's ridiculous, it is a ton of fun. I have to admit. It is. I don't, I don't know if I can characterize it the same way, though, because he's a – with Jones – like a lot of actors, but, but, but a lot, in particular, a lot of good actors, there's a very fine line between, I would actually characterize him as more of a, a kind of an over under player, you know, he's, he, he's, he, he throws a lot away and there's kind of a vague impatience and irritability all underneath every line reading, um, which makes sense for the character, but it doesn't yeah, quite, it, does. it doesn't quite fall into a predictable pattern he still he still kind of knows when to change it up and listen and register something but i just think people when he shows up and does that line reading of just saying you know my 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 what a mess where he really you know no there's no other actor on the planet who would have read it that way and there's no other line reading that would have kind of given you such kind of unexpected amusement about an authority figure coming in and, and just sort of assessing a pretty messy situation. Well, looks like you came a long way for nothing. Uh, with all due respect, uh, Sheriff Rollins, I'd like to recommend checkpoints on a 15-mile radius at I-57, I-24, and over here whoa, on whoa, Route whoa, 13 whoa, whoa, east whoa, whoa, of Chester. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, the prisoners are all dead. And the only thing checkpoints are going to do is get a lot of good people frantic around here and flood my office with calls. Well, Sheriff, I'd hate to see that happen, so I guess I'll take over your investigation. I, I think he's done beautiful work in this. And back to the the doctor smackdown in the Hilton. I, I think it's a general rule of thumb that if you ever do have a scene where two middle-aged doctors are trying to beat each other up, that scene should not go any longer than a typical doctor's office visit, <laughs> which is about 12 minutes. So to go 15 or more, not not uh, not plausible to me. I think that's a very helpful rule of thumb that filmmakers should follow. Another surprise to me on revisiting it for the first time since its release, I believe, Julianne Moore totally forgot that she was in this. You referenced the Rolling Stone piece, which is a recent oral history of the making of this movie. And that's where I did see that in one early version of the script, her character, who's a doctor in the hospital where Kimball is trying to do some research, trying to find this one-armed man. And so he's hanging out there a lot. And she has one or two scenes with him. In an early version of the script, that was meant to be something of a romantic interest. There were other scenes of him going back to her house and so forth. And this is just another instance of realizing the paths that could have been taken. Andrew Davis in that piece, the Rolling Stone piece, talks about how even as they were filming it, he thought this was going to be disastrous from the audience point of view. This is a, a doctor who part of his character is how committed he was to his wife. And then while I'm in the midst of this struggle, he would fall in love with another woman, how improbable that was. And sure enough, they did come to realize that. But it sounds like had to cut some scenes that Moore actually did film. Well, Julianne Moore, I, I, you know, I, I could I, I might have made an exception. But the uh, yeah, I think I think it would have made it, it makes no sense at all. Uh, it plays him like a hollow man then because the anguish at the beginning over the murder would not make, right. would not hold up at all. And, um, 
it's actually possible, and I don't think desirable necessarily, but it's possible that the movie would have been rolling well enough at that point that audiences would have like, okay, well, that's just Hollywood stuff. You know, because I mean, right. God knows the whole movie is Hollywood stuff. But I mean, some of the Hollywood stuff is more obvious or, you know, a little hackneyed than than other other aspects of it, like the fist fight at the end. Uh, but and we've seen train derailments in movies in the past. We just haven't seen one done quite that well. Not since, I mean, it's a it's a better scene than the greatest show on earth. It's you know, you're talked to you're back to like almost Buster Keaton the general level of of you know like actual. You it's know, audacious and very expensive and it needed one yet they had one take to, to do it right in but um yeah julianne moore says in that rolling stone interview that she was bummed that she didn't get the love scenes which were i think discreet enough retained in the final cut but it makes it, it would it just doesn't make any sense to have in there at all but she's also she's also very good and of course i think here's another here's another indication of why this movie doesn't really have a lot of movie stupid mo- moments in it the characters of Kimball and Gerard, and then the doctor played by Moore, among other supporting roles, they all have kind of equally matched intelligence, and they're all they, they're kind of they don't they're not easily fooled. Uh, they tend to think ahead. They're, they're very observant, and it's it's an indication, I think, that it, it there's a way to keep a premise like this. Uh, alive and plausible as it's just, you know, like sort of speeding along. If you just have, have this thing in your screenwriters um, list of do's and don'ts, you know, make sure to keep the, uh, different levels and different examples of intelligent, observant characters kind of at odds uh, uh, percolating. And, and I, I think too often you just find characters who are idiots for foils or, they're they're all kind of the same kind of smart ass, uh, sardonic, wisecracking sort of thing. It, it, you don't need that. We have Tommy Lee Jones who's already doing a little of that, um, and you don't need more of that. Uh, I, I think, you know, the other thing I really want to say about what you were saying about the Chicago sequences, Andrew Davis is a director who does not film like a tourist dropping in for three weeks. He's right. a guy grew up on the South Side. He made, among other major points of distinction in this guy's career, he made the only certifiably decent Chuck Norris movie ever, <laughs> Code of Silence, which people don't really know, but it's a really good Chicago-made 1985 thriller. And it's it's a dirty cop thriller, you know, kind of police corruption, uh, you know, kind of oldest story around. But 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 my memory, I haven't seen it for a while, my memory is pretty strong. And even though the film Under Siege, which is, I guess I would say, the only half good Steven Seagal film ever made, uh, that's the film that actually got him The Fugitive because Under Siege was better than expected. It made more money than expected. And Andrew Davis gets the call from his producer friend and he says, well, Harrison Ford saw Under Siege over the weekend. He wants to do The Fugitive with you. And that's how careers are made. (laughs) There I you mean, go. Andrew, Andrew Davis was directing, you know, plenty, but uh, but he wasn't directing with that kind of budget and that kind of star. And uh, I think uh, I think what you see in much more modest, smaller films like Code of Silence or Under Siege, to some degree, um, you see you see somebody who can wrangle complicated action sequences and who can also get the best possible work out of performers like like Chuck Norris or Steven Seagal who really 
never would have impressed anybody under the under different circumstances. Who, who never, who rarely impressed anybody under different circumstances. But I, I, all of that makes the fugitive. It's a big action movie with some character, with real texture, and that's that's why we come back to it. And I do think I, I think it's a really not just a good Chicago movie, but really one of the one of the very best. Even if the big sequences, the action sequences, the train derailment. And the dam jump, all that's North Carolina, and actually a lot of a lot of what we see is supposed to be Southern Illinois is uh, uh, mountainous, and uh, you know, it, it yes, made me, it is. Uh, realize I hadn't <laughs> seen all of Southern Illinois because I don't remember the mountains, but but whatever, you know, I don't care. The train wreck's too good to good to complain. <laughs> well, to go back quickly to your note about the character's intelligence, there's a nice early moment. This is just before the chase in the tunnels underneath the dam where they do have the exchange about, I didn't kill my wife, I don't care. This is before that. Kimball is smart enough to see the drain leading down to those tunnels in the car roadway tunnel and sneak down in there. Gerard is the only one smart enough to notice it. So just a nice little pairing there of their intelligences setting up what will become, as you said, a common theme of the rest of the movie. Well, The Fugitive is currently streaming on Max and it's on demand on other platforms. You could probably also find a perfectly serviceable DVD at your local library. If you revisit it, let us know if you agree or disagree with mine and Michael's thoughts. Send us an email, feedback at filmspotting.net. What's your plan here? Jeff is psychotic and they're picking on the weak and defenseless. So we teach a bunch of girls how to defend themselves. They are grateful to us. Adrenaline is flowing. Next thing you know, Isabel and Brittany are kissing us on the mouth. That's from the trailer for Bottoms, the high school lesbian fight club comedy we didn't know we needed. It's the latest from Shiva Baby director Emma Seligman. And next week, Adam is still going to be away, so my guest host will be critic Mariah E. Gates. Looking forward to having her back on the show. Along with Bottoms, Mariah and I will also take a look at Risky Business for its, yes, 40th anniversary. Michael, any strong thoughts on Risky Business? I don't think I can ask you about Bottoms because unless there was a Michael Phillips only screening, I don't think they've shown it to the press in Chicago yet. Does that sound right to you? Well, I think talking about just the general subject of Bottoms is another is another show. But uh, but the uh, probably uh, Risky yeah, Risky Business, you know, I need to see that again. I think that's a film I'm kind of obsessed with the alternate ending that uh, that Brickman preferred Paul Brickman the oh. uh, uh it's not a radical change but if I look at that on YouTube because it's a much better ending that kind of makes the movie for me and okay. and Brickman uh, with his you know back up against the wall uh, the producer David Geffen said we need a happier ending and they you know, and yes, the box office kind of responded, I think, more favorably because of it. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's exactly the same premise with the two of them. How it, how it ends in both versions. But uh, the, the original director's version is much better. But anyway, uh, I hope, uh, I, I hope that comes up, and I'll be listening to make sure it comes up. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll make a point of it then. I think I'm going to watch Risky Business again, just the theatrical release version have that in my head before i get all this coming in and messing up my thoughts but yeah maybe i'll take a look at that as well and mariah and i will touch on it so that will be next week on film spotting this week on our sister podcast the next picture show they're starting a new pairing they're calling it their 
thrupling pairing. I think I'm Ooh. saying that right. Basically, mm-hmm. this is going to look at Ira Sachs' new passages alongside 1971's Sunday Bloody Sunday, that film directed by John Schlesinger and features Peter Finch and Glenda Jackson. The next picture show looks at cinema's present via its past, and your hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find more information at nextpictureshow.net. You gotta go down cross the line and people trusted you and they died. Yeah, it went bad. It went real bad. Life sure has a sick sense of humor, doesn't it? Still surfing? Every day. Patrick Swayze and Keanu Reeves in 1991's Point Break. It is time for some poll results. A couple of weeks back when we were anticipating our fugitive reappraisal, Michael, We asked listeners, who were the best 90s action movie adversaries? Now, we did have a couple of caveats. We didn't want to throw in any sci-fi options. We didn't want any sequels. We didn't want to have De Niro and Pacino run away with this thing from Heat. So instead, here are the options that we did land at. Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones in The Fugitive. We had to have that option. Reeves and Swayze in Point Break, as you just heard. Reeves and Dennis Hopper in Speed. Jean Renault and Gary Oldman in The Professional. And then Clint Eastwood and John Malkovich in In the Line of Fire. We did give folks the option of Other, which landed in last place with 4%. 6% coming up there was In the Line of Fire. A tie at 16%. Two films got 16% of the vote. Speed and The Professional. But jumping up here with 20% of the vote is point break, which means Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones, they won this poll 37% of the vote for their portrayal of the adversaries in The Fugitive. Michael, would you have gone that route with the winning vote as well, Jones and Ford? I love if this were, if we were doing a 1991 show, man, I, we would be talking about Point Break. I love, I mean, I love that film. I think it's just great, great fun and great direction. Uh, but no, I'd still go Ford and Tommy Lee Jones for reasons we have discussed previously in this very episode. So listeners got this right. According to Michael, let's hear from some of you who did write in, starting with Stevie Blue. Listen. Harry Ford and Tommy J are a nearly unbeatable adversarial combo. Their performances in The Fugitive are both master classes in how tonal consistency can keep an audience on the edge of their seats through the power of acting alone. But then I remembered Crimson Tide. I'm looking for some verbal fireworks in my adversarial relationships, and Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman explode with aplomb, casting my vote for other. You're relieved to your position. Cobb? Remove Mr. Hunter from the control room. Get no, Lieutenant sir. Zimmer in here no, right sir. now. No, sir. I do not concur, and I do not recognize your authority to relieve me under command under Navy regulations. Cobb, arrest this man Captain and get him out of here. I like that pick. Jeff Clark says, I was tempted by the fugitive, but I wanted more direct interaction between the two leads. Hmm. Interesting. The most satisfying adversarial experience is in speed. In particular, Hopper's taunting of Reeves, making Reeves' triumph all the more satisfying. In the Line of Fire was a close second. Malkovich's voice taunting Eastwood is the stuff of nightmares. Jeff, you're into the taunting big time. (laughs) And I do like that note about direct interaction. Definitely something I took into account, Jeff. Here's Jason Work Anderson. Malkovich is so good. 
in In the Line of Fire. Don't sleep on this one. He pulls off the we're not so different you and I dynamic better than the million or so cat and mouse nemesis movies before and since. What do you see when you're in the dark and the demons come? I see you, Frank. I see you standing over the grave of another dead president. That's not going to happen. I'm on to you. David Blanar says two entries for Reeves and zero for Nick Cage. That's cinematic malpractice. The right answer is, of course, Cage and Ed Harris in The Rock. Hmm. If you say so, David. One more note here from Scott G. Face-off only barely qualifies as sci-fi due to the surgery that makes the plot possible. So I'm hoping you'll overlook that. Come on, Nicolas Cage and John Travolta not only play adversaries, but they take turns playing each character. This film came at a great time in the careers of both actors. Cage was a newly minted action star coming off Con Air and The Rock, but he also breaks out his vampire's kiss-style lunacy in the movie's first act. Meanwhile, Travolta flexes his dramatic muscles as the grieving agent early in the film, but then switches into strutting villain mode like he did in Broken Arrow about 18 months earlier. Face-Off definitely deserved to be a contender on this poll. And yes, Michael, there was a lot of consternation about what films to include, what pairings to put in this poll. What say you? Should Face-Off have been an option? I mean, you know, it does. It, the sci-fi element is not, you know, you don't think of it as a sci-fi film, but, you know, is it any less realistic than Broken Arrow? I don't know. <laughs> you know but uh, <laughs> Fair or, enough. Yeah, but uh, but I'm also uh, I'm happy it wasn't in there because I don't love Face Off like I love some of these other ones. So uh, I say, okay. good job, good job, guys, good job. It's like looking in a mirror, only not. Well, thank you to everyone who voted and contributed a comment. We're going to move on to the new poll. Looking ahead in a couple of weeks, believe it or not, I hate to even say this, but we will be doing our fall movie preview. Not sure if I'm quite ready. For fall itself, Michael. Now, it is worth noting that with both writers and actors currently on strike, the fall movie calendar is a little up in the air. Do you have much of a sense of how many titles this might affect, how much of a disruption this might be? And I should note, Film Spotting fully supportive of all those on strike, but we are dealing with the realities of what that might do to the upcoming calendar. Yeah, it's going to hurt. I, I think a lot of stuff is going to get moved to spring, but I, I also don't know how much of that's studio posturing or just a negotiating tactic. It's also um, a little heartbreaking, frankly, for the movie theater owners who have actually gotten back a little bit on their feet thanks to Barbie and Oppenheimer. And and now suddenly the fall calendar's in flux and you're not looking at much, possibly. We'll see. Really too early yeah. to, to predict. So, you know, we'll see. It definitely felt like there was so much momentum coming out of those two films in particular about movie going back in theaters. So, so that is a shame if some of that does fall off. We're going to assume that the fall movie schedule remains more or less in place for the purposes of this poll. And just asking you, what's your most anticipated movie of the fall? We define fall as Labor Day up to Thanksgiving. Here are your options. Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, that comes out October 6th. Sofia Coppola's Priscilla, October 27th. Denis Villeneuve's sequel, Dune Part 2. We're getting into November here, November 3 for that one. David Fincher's new film, The Killer, will be on Netflix November 10. And then one more option, Ridley Scott's Napoleon. That's a November 22 release. We'll give you 
the option to write in another title with other as well. Is there one clear choice for you there, Michael? In early voting on Facebook and Twitter, the Scorsese film is way out front, Dune 2 in second. Is it one of those two for you or another title there? I mean, I, I really am intrigued by and, and heartened by the response to Killers of the Flower Moon that I can, uh, the Cannes Film Festival. I mean, people really were high on it. And it's a great nonfiction book, uh, which I just read uh, a few months ago. So, yeah, I hope it's good. But, you know, honestly, all all the five you mentioned have reasons to be optimistic. So just based on the on the director's respective best work, you know, and, and uh, uh, that's, I really don't want all of it to get dumped to spring. I don't think it's going to happen with anything that's Netflix related, like the David Fincher film or, you know, Scorsese's sure. Colors of the, well, you know, Flower, Flower Moon's going to be on Apple with a certain date. So I don't think they're going to jack with the theatrical on that, but the rest of them, I don't know. We'll see. I don't, I don't like the uncertainty, but we're going to have to live with it. <laughs> Yep. Well, some listeners have already begun voting and chosen the other option. Here's what they've been writing in. The latest from Eli Roth, Thanksgiving. That's a feature-length adaptation of his Grindhouse trailer. Gareth Edwards' Humanity vs. AI film, The Creator. We also have Alexander Payne reunited with Paul Giamatti in The Holdovers and Taika Waititi's soccer movie, Next Goal Wins. Those have all gotten write-in votes from listeners so far. If you have yet to vote in the poll, please do that and leave a comment over at filmspotting.net. Up next, it's the top five films of 1993. But first, a brief clip from a 1993 movie draft that we did earlier this year. I've got to have it. And I want it because Good I thought film. the two of you would want it, but I'm suspecting now, no. Is this I've what already, I'm hearing? I've already written it in. I've written it in. You've taken wow. it. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. Neither of you wanted it. <laughs> we, well, well, it depends. Is your, is your pick in stone? <laughs> it's in stone. Yes. Okay. Well then, no, we this didn't. This is not how, this is not how we thought it'd go, man. That's me with Adam and producer Sam back in March of this year. It's an excerpt from our 1993 movie draft bonus show. I'm not going to tell you what film it was that I took there with that first pick in the draft that took Adam and Sam by surprise. I can tell you it will come up shortly on my top five films of 1993. Monthly bonus shows like this 93 movie draft, they're just one of the perks for becoming a supporting member of the film spotting family. Movie drafts, if you like that sort of thing, they're a not infrequent bonus show subject, but we do mix up all the things that we cover on these bonus shows. Michael, you joined us for a bonus show last fall. You wouldn't partake in anything as nonsensical as a movie draft. You're you're much more erudite. And so it was our sight and sound ballots that we talked about <laughs> on that bonus show. You remember doing that one? I don't know if that actually made my, my resistance to movie drafts even worse that it was all this highbrow stuff. <laughs> no. I know. You don't like doing that either, the sight and no, sound No, no. So. You know what? Honestly, you guys have completely broken me down on the drafting. I enjoy it now. I know I do. I'm, I, I'm, uh, I'm exhausted from complaining about it, and, and I'm perfectly happy to put uh, Pauly Shore up against uh, uh, Kurosawa now. You know, I'm I'm, it makes sense to me now. I love it. Your film spotting madness. You're in movie drafts. You're in. You've come. You're drinking the Kool Aid from a fire hose here on film spotting. I'm glad we wore <laughs> you down, Michael. Well, there are other benefits if you do become a family member, 
And this is in addition to those monthly bonus shows. That can be one option you choose. You will also get early and ad-free episodes of the show. You'll get a weekly newsletter written by producer Sam. And you can choose to have access to the entire Film Spotting archive. That goes back to 2005. So that means, Michael, members of the Film Spotting family, they can listen to some of the first shows you did where you appeared, which goes back before I joined the show. I mean, when were you a guest host? Do you remember the year for the first time or the film that you talked about the first time you came on film spotting? Yeah, yeah. I think it was Sunrise, the song of two humans when it came out in 27. I think that was, that was my first uh, time on podcasting was, was relatively new then. Um, yes, I would imagine uh, it was this this futuristic mode of communication. (laughs) I don't know what, what, what would in the, in the, uh, in the, in the steampunk, uh, parlance, what, what would the 1927 word for podcast have been? If movies were photo (laughs) plays, what would a podcast have been? A very good question. Why, wireless gab or who knows, but, um, there you go. Yeah, we'll I have to uh, listen to the archives to get the answers to some of these pressing questions <laughs> and, and find when Michael Phillips first appeared. I think it was I'm going to guess it was it was sometime after 2005, actually, not 1927. But but we'll get some it, clarification it, on that. I think it might have been uh, seven, maybe. Oh, seven. OK, it's possibly. Right. Yeah. Now, is there a way I to think be, that's a better guess? Is there a way to become a, f- a member of the film spotting family and pay a little extra and get and do the filter where it's really only my episodes that people can access? What Ooh. do you think? Well, let's not stop there. Let's add a tier where my voice and Adam's voice is just cut out and it's pretty much a Michael <laughs> Phillips monologue. We should we should we do some testing to see if there's interest in that? Like there is it. not currently a Michael Phillips tier, but I can I can tell you about another tier that we do have. It's it's the top tier of support. This is becoming a member of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And I bring this up, Michael, because the advisory board, we hold quarterly meetings by Zoom and talk to these folks about all sorts of pressing show business. We talk about future marathon topics. We talk about film spotting madness seating. And this month we have coming up a quarterly meeting with the Film Spotting Advisory Board about the future of the Film Spotting Pantheon. This list of films that has been around since the beginning, hallowed titles, we want to rethink that, possibly Mm. reorganize that, involve listeners in maybe voting on what titles should be in there. So many questions. We're going to have the Film Spotting Advisory Board help us answer some of those. So, That meeting is scheduled for August 24th. Plenty of time if you want to go ahead and join the advisory board. If you're interested in becoming part of the Film Spotting family at any level, go to filmspottingfamily.com. That's filmspottingfamily.com. We would love to have your support. And now let's go back to the 20th anniversary of the 1993 movie year and our top five films of 1993. Suppose... I were to offer you one million dollars for one night with your wife. I'd assume you're kidding. Let's pretend I'm not. What would you say? He'd tell you to go to hell. I didn't hear him. I'd tell you to go to hell. How can you do 
the top five films of 1993 and not play a scene from that Adrian Lyne classic indecent proposal. Classic. You're going Why classic. Not? Of course, Robert Redford there, Woody Harrelson, Demi Moore also in the movie. And alas, indecent proposal, not going to make my top five, but it did make a semi honorable mention category for me, Josh, which is guilty pleasures from 1993. I don't feel that guilty about. No. Indecent proposal is one of them. The other one is Tombstone, which is a movie I happen to adore with Val Kilmer and Kurt Russell. So those two not going to make this list. And before we get to the picks that did make our list, I guess maybe we should explain why the hell we're talking about films from 1993. Why not? Well, why not? That's one answer. The second answer would be these movies are celebrating their 20-year anniversary. Yikes. So there's a little bit of a hook there, yes, and that does make us feel very old. But the third reason is this is something we do here on Film Spotting. We haven't done one in a long time, but we like to do these year-by-year countdowns because the show started in 2005. So every year from 2005 up to 2012, we've shared our top 10 films of the year on the show. So what we did starting maybe four or five years ago was go back to 2004, the year before the show started, and count backwards and do our top five from these years. And we share all these lists under the top five link at filmspotting.net. But Josh, I don't know if I've been able to talk you into one of these, except for there were tie-ins with other shows. Like when we talked about Raiders of the Lost Ark, we did our favorite films of 81. Right. And I think we did our favorite films of 86. We did 94 for the Sacred Cow Review of Pulp Fiction. That's it. Yeah, you do like these I do. lists. Because I'm a little apprehensive like about them. I know, and I understand why they like them. As a listener, I would like to hear them too. But putting them together is a little daunting for me because sometimes I feel like I just haven't seen enough films. You know, you're, you put a lot of film viewing in to make a top 10 list every year now. True. I wasn't doing that this long ago. So, but all that being said, I looked back on the movies that matter. came out in 93. What a rich year. Yeah, I mean, very it, good year. it was hard to choose among the ones I had seen and really appreciate it. Well, so. you joked that it was a formative year for us, but it really was for me because not only was I at that point, 17, 18, where I was graduating from high school. Obviously, that's a big year when you graduate from high school, but also in terms of my being smitten with cinema, that had really just happened the summer before. The year I graduated, the summer of 92 was the year I really discovered my love for movies. So these movies were really important to me, though. With that said, I went back and realized, Josh, that I think only one film on my list I actually saw in 1993. Really? I think maybe 94 or later in 93 when it was out on DVD. But I only saw one of these films in the theater the year it came out. Yeah, all of mine, I'm looking at the list right now, I did see then and have seen since. So a little bit different perspective. Well, let's hear your number five. So number five, it's not the most surprising pick. I, I wanted to try to find something else, did a little viewing to see if something else could slip in here. But I had to go with Schindler's List. I mean, if you take the Oscar wins and the Spielberg name away and just look at the film, it's very difficult for me to not put it among the top five. This was really a turning point, I think, for Spielberg in his career because it finally merged his filmmaking talents with this desire to be taken seriously that I think we probably first saw around 1985 with The Color Purple. And that led to complications. Some of his other attempts weren't quite as successful in making one of these prestige pictures. Here, it works. Schindler's List has this documentary-like distance from its story, which is the true account of a Polish factory owner who comes to protect his Jewish employees while under Nazi occupation. The filmmaking flourishes here. They're applied sparingly. I'm thinking of the little girl in the red coat rather than overwhelmingly, which they often can be in Spielberg pictures to good effects. But I think that would have been the wrong way to go here. And so he knows how to pull back those reins in just the right way. This is certainly a prestige picture, as I said, but 
maybe what's the most impressive thing about it is the way Spielberg's talent here, it allows him to to make a prestige picture that's alive and honest as well. The entire foundation has to be torn down and repoured. If not, there will be at least a subsidence at the southern end of the barracks. Subsidence and then collapse. You are an engineer. Yes. My name is Diana Reiter. I'm a graduate of civil engineering from the University of Milan. Oh, I'm educated too, like Karl Marx himself. Unter Schafjörer. Jawohl. Shoot her. Yes. Commandant! I'm only trying to do my job. Yeah, I'm doing mine. Well, Schindler's List is for me like another Holocaust film, The Pianist from Roman Polanski, a one-timer. It's a movie mm. I've only seen once, and I probably only need to see once, and that maybe isn't fair, because yeah. it's a very good film, and I think there are a lot of rewards there, but the fact is, it's just not subject matter. I really want to And I can understand, but, but I think to appreciate, like I said, the, the levels of riches in the film, yeah. multiple viewings, that's the case for any film, but especially here, to get past the subject matter, to get past... Like I said, the Oscars, the reputation, to get past the reputation and into the film itself is really important with this. Yeah, the Ray Fiennes performance really is. You want to talk about monsters on screen. He is mesmerizing. And that film, you mentioned the word prestige. Another honorable mention for me, prestige pictures I really like but didn't make my top five, Schindler's List and Philadelphia, the film starring Tom Hanks. My number five is a film I've never written about or talked about. I don't think it's ever been discussed in any detail on the show or even made a top five. I haven't seen it since, I think maybe the year after it came out in theater. So I'm just going on the fact that I remember loving this movie and it's Robert Altman's Shortcuts. The sweep of this movie, those interconnected stories, I think there's like 22 different characters in the movie. And when you think of Altman, you think about those great ensemble casts. You think about his great use of dialogue. And that whole interconnected thing has been done a lot since Shortcuts. It's probably been done before, too, if I really go back and look at my film history. But I don't know if it's been done any better than it is here in Shortcuts. The way Altman does fit it all together in a way that going back to our discussion of Short Term 12 doesn't necessarily feel too neat and tidy. And as I was thinking about Altman, I was thinking about our discussion of 2001 last week on the show and the week before, all the focus on Stanley Kubrick and his sense of human frailty. I think about that a lot with Robert Altman as well. He really is a director who some people find too misanthropic. They find him too cynical and maybe has too much of a dark sense of humor and can be patronizing. I don't see Altman that way. I think there is some real humanity there, but it's a fun question to consider as you watch his movies. And Shortcuts is one of those films that does find those comedic moments amidst a lot of darkness or at least some grim subject matter and certainly human frailty you see on display in that movie. So again, one I'd love to revisit still just based on what I remember of it good enough to make my top five. Yeah, I think we were lucky to be just getting into movies or at least only have been doing that for a couple of years around that time in regards to Altman because we had The Player. That was my first that Altman was film my I'd foray. ever seen. Absolutely. Yeah, and then I remember, you know, I, I went out to see Shortcuts because of that in the theater in 93. And yeah, you know, a, a good renaissance time to discover that particular filmmaker. My number four is Three Colors Blue. It's the first in Krzysztof Kieslowski's Three Colors trilogy with Juliette Binoche as a wife and mother who survives a car accident in which her husband and daughter are killed. Now, her response to this is to cut all ties to her former life, and she goes out and begins this anonymous new life. But this isn't really 
out of any sort of sense of, of freedom that she's pursuing, which the structure of the film might suggest, but rather it's it's sort of a stunted form of mourning that she's experiencing here. And this is really a mournful film. I mean, everything from the color scheme to the score. Benoche's character's husband was a composer, so much of the film's music comes from one of his pieces, and the actual composer for the film's music was regular Kislowski collaborator Zygniew Preisner. Now, Benoche, of course, she can perfectly embody this sort of purgatory state, even without saying a word. I'd probably name this the best performance by an actress in 93, except for another film I'll get to later. Okay. Well, she also has competition, depending on how you look at the films and when they came out chronologically, but the Three Colors film Red, starring Irene Jacob, that might be an even better performance than one of those Three Colors films, but Benoche is so spectacular, and that's a great film. So good, I don't have a cleverly named category for it. It's just my number six. It's the movie uh, I really, really wanted to find a place for and probably could have, but I also had a feeling you were going to go with it, so left it just off. My number four is the movie that somehow finished dead last in our which film from 1993 do you save full question. It is True Romance, and you talk about Robert Altman. You talk about his use of ensembles and those great actors and great character actors. A lot of people you don't necessarily always think of as the biggest stars, but are fun to see those faces in a Robert Altman film. Well, True Romance is also full of those kind of people. Some stars, some not so much stars. But yes, you get Dennis Hopper. You get Christopher Walken. But Val Kilmer, Gary Oldman, Brad Pitt. The two stars of the film, I think, are very good, Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette. But you also love seeing those faces show up near the end, like Tom Sizemore, Chris Penn, James Gandolfini. So great cast. And going back to that poll question, when you do think of this in terms of, okay, you can only save five films from 1993. You're saying these are the best. If you pretend all other ones are going to be destroyed, what are you keeping? Well, I'm keeping True Romance because not only do I want to hang on to Gary Oldman's spivey pimp character— I do want to save that Sicilian scene. You know, Sicilians are great liars. Best in the world. I'm Sicilian. My father was the world heavyweight champion of Sicilian liars. From growing up with him, I learned the pantomime. There are 17 different things a guy can do when he lies to give himself away. Guy's got 17 pantomimes. Woman's got 20 guys got 17 but if you know them like you know your own face they'd be lie detectors all to hell now what we got here is a little game of show and tell you don't want to show me nothing but you tell me everything that scene that is such a tarantino scene that dialogue between walken and hopper is so much fun to watch because like you get with so many good tarantino films there's so much tension built out of just two people sitting across from each other having a conversation it's that elmore leonard approach to storytelling we talked about on our recent tribute to him where the tension comes from seeing where the story is going to go a character employing a story to great effect and then the response to it you also see in Tarantino's writing there the casual racism or not so casual racism of the characters maybe Tarantino as well depending on your perspective and Walken and Hopper are just giving a masterclass I think the reaction when Walken first hears Dennis Hopper question his ancestry is really priceless stuff and I think watching Hopper too it goes beyond just being Josh for me just a lot of fun Tarantino dialogue and them having fun with the scene you see in Hopper some real layers there where he's defending his son He's trying to protect his son's whereabouts. And you recognize in his face very early on the fact that he recognizes he's going to die. That no matter what he says here, 
he's not coming out of this alive. And watching that character go through that realization on screen is something pretty profound, I think. And he at least decides, I'm going to go out on my terms. And boy, does he ever. You're Sicilian, huh? Sicilian. <laughs> you know, I read a lot, especially about things, about history. I find that fascinating. Here's a fact. I don't know whether you know or not. Well, Sicilians were spawned by... Come again? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it's a fact. Yeah, I haven't seen True Romance since 93, so it's hard for me to say. My instinct is that I feel like I might have outgrown it if I watched hmm. it now. Just memories of it, as and as you're talking about those scenes, it seems like a parade of scene stealers, which has its entertainment value. But the one movie I'd want to keep, I don't I don't know, I'd, I'd probably be looking for something well, more. Well, it is number four for me, Josh, but True Romance... For me, a movie I didn't see until probably just about six or seven years ago. That's what I was wondering. When was so, the last time you saw it? Interesting. All yeah, right. I guess I'm just more juvenile than you. <laughs> Obviously. My number three, speaking of juvenile, Groundhog Day, or maybe not, because this is the Bill Murray comedy that people often point to as a comedy that's doing so much more. I mean, the big questions are here. Who am I? Why am I here? What is my place in the time-space continuum? You know, it's great when the big filmmakers, the Igmar Bergmans or the Stanley Kubricks, consider these questions. But I get a special kick out of it when a genre film does this. Something like even Ryan Johnson's Looper from last year. You know, a sci-fi action movie that asks some of these questions. And here we get... Bill Murray as Phil Connors doing the same thing. Connors is this arrogant weatherman who's covering the annual appearance of Punxsutawney Phil, and he finds himself in a time loop that's repeating the same day over and over and over again. So it's a wonderful comic exaggeration of our own everyday existential angst, I think, about life as this never-ending routine. We can, we can hook into that right away and understand that. And there's a release valve here, too, because this is a comedy. But really, I think this movie works because of Murray. And watching some clips, it's been a while since I've seen it, and watching some clips made me realize how another actor in a lot of these scenes – this wouldn't have been anything special at all, no. probably. Uh, but he has, you know, he has the self-loathing that we often see from him. Yet this is one of those few films that allows him a way out of that and manages to reach it without being sappy, at least to me. Even though it does go in that direction, I think it handles it really well. I think people place too much emphasis on their careers. Gosh, I wish we could all live in the mountains at high altitudes. That's where I see myself in five years. How about you? Oh, I agree. I just like to go with the flow. Yeah? See what happens. Well, it's gotten you here. Uh-huh. Of course, it's a million miles from where I started out in college. Oh, yeah? You weren't in broadcasting or journalism or anything like that? Uh-huh. Hmm. Believe it or not, I studied 19th century French poetry. La fille qui j'aimerais, sera comme bon fin. Que c'est bon fiera. Un peu. Chaque matin. You speak French. Oui. 
This is also a movie that's grown in reputation. I know Roger Ebert, for one, initially gave it a mildly positive review, and then eventually he included it in one of his great movies books. So I think a lot of people have come around to appreciate it that way, and our poll suggests they certainly did. Yeah, and maybe it's the push of many of our film spotting listeners that have made me regard it a little more highly, though I always enjoyed it. It was a movie that whenever it came on, I got pleasure out of, and I remember liking it when I saw it the first time. Groundhog Day might be one that I did actually see in the theater in 1993. It might be in my top 10 of that year, but just behind Indecent Proposal. Oh, no way. I think... Come on. (laughs) I had to get that dig in there. My number three, if we're talking about things we're going to save, and I'm going to try to save Gary Oldman and the Sicilian scene from True Romance, my number four, I don't want to lose the character Johnny, played by David Thewlis in Mike Lee's film Naked. That's my number three choice for film of 1993. He made my top five Gonzo characters a little while back on the show, and I was thinking about him. I believe that was my first show ever. Yeah, it might have been. And he actually makes me think a lot of another character we discussed recently on the show, and that's Kate Blanchett's character from Blue Jasmine. That might actually make a good double feature, though. I like the movie Naked more, but they're similarly self-destructive characters. They're lost characters. They come to rely on friends or family members to try to put them up as they're looking for a place to kind of call home temporarily, and they never can quite seem to find a home. They just are constantly adrift and can't really survive in society. They're also both, for lack of a more appropriate term, slightly crazy. I mean, they clearly have some mental issues that they're dealing with, as well as superiority issues. And I mentioned frailty talking about Kubrick. Wow, that's really on display in Mike Lee's work, especially in Naked. These characters really unable to connect. They want to with others. You sense that in Johnny, and I think that's what makes you empathize with him, even though he's a monster. And he does some things on screen that really just can't be forgiven. But at least in him, you recognize that he wants, I think, to connect, but is his own worst enemy. And I saw an interview with David Thewlis where he talked about that character, how he was a hard one to play because it did really put him in touch with a lot of his own anger. And he had to kind of get that out of his system. And you get that sense watching the performance that he really would have had to tap in to some of that. And he mentioned something about seeing in that character or the character seeing in the world, this absence of compassion he senses in the world. But then that just makes him so angry that he doesn't have any compassion himself. You know, there's this kind of hypocrisy about him. He makes you think a lot, of course, of of Holden Caulfield and Catcher in the Rye, that same sense of, well, the whole world's phony and fake. Well, then it turns out he's probably just as phony, if not more so, because he lets that resentment build up in him so much. So I do love that character and that film, Mike Lee's Naked. Another one I didn't see until pretty recently, I think maybe as I was preparing for my interview with Mike Lee four years or so ago, five years ago here on the show. I finally did catch up with it, but great movie. So, would you describe yourself as a happy little person? Yeah, I'm the life and soul. (laughs) Have you ever thought, right? I mean, you don't know, but you might already have had the happiest moment in your whole life, and all you've got to look forward to is sickness and purgatory. Oh, s***. I just live from day to day myself. (laughs) I tend to skip a day now and again, you know what I mean? (laughs) I used to be a werewolf, but I'm all right. No! No. Naked, not exactly a family film. No. But I'm going to go that direction with my number two. It's Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Burton provided the original poem and drawings, but it was stop-motion specialist Henry Selleck who brought this macabre movie musical to thrilling life. The basic 
plot here. It's a stroke of imaginative genius. Jack Skellington, the pumpkin king of Halloween Town, grows tired of his spooky duties, so he decides to fill in for Santa Claus one Christmas. And of course, he's not the skeleton for the job. Now, Halloween Town was my choice earlier this year for our top five movie locations we'd like to visit. It's just this dismally gorgeous place down to the tiniest, most gruesome detail. So much visual wit packed into every frame here. Sally, who's Jack's love interest, she keeps having to sew her arms and legs back on. I love how she just considers it a minor annoyance. You also get wonderful songs by Danny Elfman, of course. Uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, it's it's required holiday viewing in our house. And the great thing about it is you can watch it twice a year, Christmas and Halloween. Well, film spotting confession, I've never seen it. Watch it with the kids? No, I've never seen it. And it's funny you say that because recently on our vacation back in August on our family trip, one night, I plugged in the laptop to the television and yeah. we pulled up Netflix Instant and the kids wanted to watch. And I think they've seen it before, which is why they wanted to watch it. The kids wanted to watch The Nightmare Before Christmas. And it started and we got like three minutes into it. And it was just one of those things where we couldn't keep a good connection. Oh, no. And we couldn't watch it. We had to stop it. <laughs> you so missed that your probably shot. would have been my opportunity. <laughs> and I blew it. You're listening to Film Spotting with Josh and Adam. We're sharing our top five films of 1993. It's part of our year-by-year countdowns here on the show. 20 years ago, these movies came out. And my number two is an obvious one to anyone who's been listening to this show for some time. It is The Remains of the Day, the Merchant Ivory production that I love. Maybe the only Merchant Ivory production I truly love. And I mentioned Naked, my number three, oddly comparable as I was writing down my notes about Remains of the Day in the sense that you've got there two unique isolated worlds being explored. The lower class society where you don't normally see much on screen and those characters in Mike Lee's world. But then here in Remains of the Day, that high, high-class society, the aristocracy, the ultra-rich, and again, characters longing to connect but who can't and who are kind of their own worst enemies, whether it's madness or a sense of superiority that keeps them from it in Naked or in this movie, the sense of duty, which for whatever reason in Remains of the Day really has always drawn me to this picture. I just find it such a romantic, heartbreaking movie. Of course, it's got two of the finest actors around in Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson. And there are so many scenes I love, but one that really sticks out to me, Josh, is the one with the book where Emma Thompson catches Anthony Hopkins reading a story and starts to tease him a little bit and wonders if the book is maybe something racy because he won't show her what he's reading. He won't share it with her. What's in that book? Come on, let me see. Or are you protecting me? Is that what you're doing? Would I be shocked? Would it ruin my character? Let me see it. And the way Anthony Hopkins retreats into the corner while she's talking to him, like a little boy, where he's just trying to hide and try to shield himself in the corner, the closer he gets to her. And then when it's revealed that the book isn't racy at all, what does he say? Well, I read to edify myself. I read these books, any books, to develop my command and knowledge of the English language. I read to further my education, Miss Kenton. And of course, is this sense that it's part of his duty to better himself, and that's why he reads. It would certainly be for nothing as tawdry as pleasure. And that scene, especially as you see the closer they get to each other, it's the most physical contact they have. It's the closest they come to ever consummating their feelings for each other. But there's that sense with Hopkins' character, he just can't take the risk. He's just not willing to put himself out there. It's better to stifle those feelings and focus on his work, which he can control, than take a chance and possibly be rebuked. And something about that fear and that trepidation in that character 
And again, the sense of longing that they're never able to consummate. For whatever reason, in 1993, this is the one movie I definitely saw in the theaters. And still, when I catch up with it now, I still have those same feelings of heartbreak. I just love The Remains of the Day. My number one is the real reason why I was excited about doing this list, because I finally will get a chance to talk about the piano. It's writer-director Jane Campion's masterpiece, to my mind. It really is one of the greats. It's set in 1850s New Zealand, where a mute woman has been sent as part of an arranged marriage to live with this wealthy landowner. And she takes longer prize piano, which is going to figure into much of the ensuing story. So Holly Hunter is, of course, in the role, the lead role of Ada. And she's just devastating here. What's especially shocking to realize is remember how crucial her motor mouth was in raising Arizona to making that performance broadcast news to making those work and she doesn't have that tool here she doesn't have it at all goes a completely different direction and gives what I think is an even better performance than those I I think about her face in that scene where she loses her finger I'm not going to say how but just the unnerving defiance that sets in there always really jars me. This isn't just an acting showcase, though. Even though Hunter and Anna Paquin as Ada's daughter both won Oscars, I do think it's the definitive example of Campion's ethereal sense of composition. I mean, she brings that otherworldliness to even the most ordinary of settings in so many of her films. I think of the recent Netflix series, Top of the Lake, but it's emphasized even more here in this natural landscape, very watery, like Top of the Lake again. And just at the end of the world for that time, it's a perfect fit. There's just so much else that's good about this movie. Michael Nyman's piano score, a disarmingly gentle Harvey Keitel as as this neighbor who takes piano lessons from Ada. And and that sort of leads to an amazingly complicated handling of sexuality. It's the the sort we, we rarely get at the movies. I saw something fairly distressing on Letterboxd, Adam. There was, <laughs> there was someone, someone named Adam Kempinar who gave this, I think, two and a half out of five stars. I was please you'd tell see that. me, please tell me you didn't shrug off this movie. Yeah, maybe I was just too excited to lay into it a little bit because I knew it was going to be your number one. But the piano was the movie that I knew of all the movies I need to see from 1993 still, it was the one I knew I had to see before forming this list, or I just would have felt too guilty. And I watched it, and I have to say, everything you described that's good about the film is good about the film. Holly Hunter is amazing. I'd also say Anna Paquin's amazing. I really like Sam Neill in it. Harvey Keitel, I'm not quite as sold on. Hunter's performance, the face, all those things are great. The music is great. But you talk about sexuality, Josh, to me, watching this film. And I'm curious, let me ask you real quick first. Have you rewatched this movie since yeah. you saw it originally? Yeah. How recently? Probably seen it um, three times. Okay. And maybe the last time was, it was, it's probably been more than five years ago. Because really my sense of it now, and I'm going to try to not be too dismissive here and make this sound like I'm suggesting you were the one being too juvenile, but my sense watching the piano for the first time just a couple nights ago was that if I saw it in 1993... I would have loved it. As I was just discovering cinema, and I was watching this real art house film that seemed really challenging to me in the way it was playing with sexuality, in the way the plotting is really loose and incoherent and doesn't spell a lot of things out, I probably would have really thought that was fascinating in 1993. I don't remember that. Watching it now, I don't feel that way at all. I actually feel like it's kind of a mess. And in particular, what bugged me about it is some of the things you talked about in terms of the view of sexuality, I think the movie thinks it's a lot more transgressive and daring than it really is. Nothing about the the sexual intimations or those scenes, the piano lesson scenes, they didn't strike me as racy. 
not passionate, not confounding in a fascinating way. I mean, they didn't make me think about anything. They actually just didn't work for me at all. I don't think it's going for any sort of transgressive sense of sexuality. So? No, well, it's you just described it's that it's complicated is the word I used. I think it those are the it's scenes, more complicated than it is. Those, no way. Those are the scenes that are talked about because Harvey Keitel is new to them. That this one small element of it is their interrelationship. Sex also here is very much a tool of power when Without you think of how Sam Neill uses it. Yeah. And it's very complicated even in how Ada uses it as a form of communication. When does it finally become something that's actual intimacy for relationship? And I think that the Harvey Keitel character is very intriguing here in how what seems to be exploitative and in some ways is, it's also very crucial to the fact that his listening to her while she mm-hmm. plays the piano, the sexuality is a part of that. But think about the fact that he's actually listening to her. Right. He's the only man in this time and in this situation and probably in her whole experience who gives her the space to listen. And the fact that sexuality really is like a part of that, the fact that he's also <laughs> exploiting her is part of the complication I'm talking about. So it isn't just some romantic notion of sex. Certainly not. But I would still argue for me. It's a movie that seems a lot more complicated in those romantic How and sexual relationships. How is all of that not complicated, though? It seems complicated compared to a lot of Hollywood films, but I don't think it's complicated at all compared to a lot of other great films that we could name here. It didn't strike me as anything <sighs> wow. interesting. I'll be honest with you. Nothing about the Sex sexual Sex Campion's films is as complicated as in any other pictures you'll see, hmm. and this is a prime example of didn't it. Didn't feel that here, unfortunately, but let's get to a film I think we can agree on, though. It hasn't come up yet, so it clearly didn't make your top five. Mine number one, yes, this is Linklater Nation. I'm planting the flagpole. Not to indulge in any alcohol, drugs, sex after 12, or any other illegal activity. Right. No, my shadow. Later, baby. Found that in your glove compartment, man. Hey, you know you're the third person who's given me this today? God. But what do you reckon you're going to do? So, I don't know, man. I'll probably end up signing it. I just don't want to give in so easy. Man, it's the same bullshit they tried to pull in my day. You know, if it ain't that piece of paper, some other choice they're going to try and make for you. You got to do what Randall Pink Floyd wants to do, man. And let me tell you this. The older you do get, the more rules are going to try to get you to follow. <laughs> you just got to keep living, man. L-I-V-I-N. <laughs> I'm going with Dazed and Confused, and it's a movie that I didn't see in 1993, and I saw later, a couple times, always liked it, but it was only really recently, seeing it maybe in the past year or two, where I recognized a real profound appreciation for the movie and what Linklater is doing with the film. It elevated above it being just a really good, entertaining time. I actually think it's an essential film, and it was appropriate that just recently I was listening to Olivia Wilde on The Treatment with Elvis Mitchell. It's a really good interview. I do recommend it. And they're talking about her film Drinking Buddies, which I've recommended here on the show, the one from Joe Swanberg. And that timing was perfect because as I was thinking about this list and hearing that interview, Drinking Buddies is another movie I wouldn't put quite up there with Days and Confused, but it's another one that you can describe, and I did on the show, as a movie that just gets the moments right. It feels so authentic, Josh, that term that we discussed in the opening of the show. It just feels so genuine. And the more I think about that, I'm always struggling whenever I write down that as praise for a film. What does that really mean? It seems like there should be some better way to articulate a strength of a movie than to say it feels real. Because the fact is, there are a lot of filmmakers and writers who use dialogue in ways that don't feel real at all. 
And I love those guys, too. I love Aaron Sorkin's dialogue. I love Tarantino's dialogue, Mamet's dialogue, the Coen brothers. I don't know that you describe any of those filmmakers as being particularly real. Or think of classic Hollywood. I mean, if we put exactly. that standard Screwball on classic Hollywood, right. You're right. And so I love all that, too. So why is it that I can just pass off, oh, well, Drinky Buddies felt real. This movie, Days and Confused, feels real. I still haven't come up with a completely acceptable answer for myself, but I guess what I can say is that some movies just hit on something so specific that the characters and the stories do become universal. And there's something about Dazed and Confused capturing that sort of last night of revelry for a lot of these people, some going from junior high to high school, others coming out of high school and trying to figure out what they're going to do in their senior years or beyond. It feels so loose. It feels like it's 24 hours, but it's sprawling and you're following all these different character threads. But when you watch it again, you can really appreciate how Linklater structures the movie and how all these storylines deal with these characters embarking on adulthood and trying to wrestle with this notion of individuality as they become adults and whether or not that's something they can retain. You certainly see that in the Mitch character becoming a man, Adam Goldberg and the fight at the end. Pink, the main character, of course, Randall Pink Floyd, and that sheet of paper that he just doesn't want to sign. And that question keeps coming up over and over again. Well, who cares? Just sign it and then do whatever you want. Why does it really matter? And it does matter to him because it feels false. It just feels wrong to him. And I love that at one point he says about the football coaches, he thinks it's because they just want everyone to sign it because they think the kids are having too much fun. And he might actually be right that this whole idea the movie's dealing with about becoming an adult, becoming a man, may involve giving up that sense of fun. It's something not all these characters want to do, and maybe they shouldn't. And part of fun is retaining some sense of your individual identity that is important. So you think about Days and Confused in 1993, Josh. You look back at a film like American Graffiti. 1973. So every 20 years or so, maybe we just need another movie like this. Hmm. And it's 2013 now. So where's our American graffiti slash dazed and confused? And can we even have it? Do kids hang out this way anymore? Do they drive around the town anymore and actually interact in these kind of interpersonal ways? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a kid. I haven't been one for a while. But I think we're due for another Days and Confused. I'd like to see how it manifests itself on screen now. Can I propose that it should probably be the Facebook movie we didn't get with the social network, which for all its virtues was not really a Facebook movie exactly. in my mind. And I, I wonder, you know, certainly if you're going to look at how kids have these relationships now, it's going to be online largely. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know. We'll have to see if that if comes about. Done either yet or not. If it has, we haven't seen it. So I agree with you. That'd be something interesting to see explored on screen. Those are our top five films in 1993. What about any honorable mentions, Josh? Yeah, Dazed and Confused was one jostling for that number six place for sure. I also caught up with Fearless for the first time. Somehow I had missed Peter Weir's elliptical spiritual drama about a guy who survives a plane crash and then thinks he's invincible. Jeff Bridges is really good in that role. Iron Monkey was a martial arts film directed by the grandmaster action choreographer Yen Wo Ping. That was really good. A Perfect World is uh, an underknown but really strong Clint Eastwood drama starring Kevin Costner. Farewell, My Concubine. This was a prestige picture, if there ever was one. Chen Kaiga's can-winning costume epic. Menace to Society came out, the Hughes Brothers debut, and one more A lot here. of movies here, Josh. One more. I saw a lot of movies in 93. All my college money apparently went to the theater. Matinee, the affectionate showbiz spoof starring John Goodman as a 1960s film pioneer. It's directed by the underrated Joe Dante. All right, well, your turn. I have already mentioned six of my honorable mentions, so I'll give you four more that haven't come up somehow. 
good action movies from 1993. And I know a lot of people out there are screaming right now, The Fugitive, how can it not be in your top five? I think The Fugitive is a really good movie. And Jurassic Park, even though, as I wrote on Letterboxd recently, I think it's maybe a little bit overrated by a lot of film spotting listeners. It's still a really good action movie. And I do think it at least deserves an honorable mention. Two others that I think are overlooked films from 1993 that Josh you didn't say King of the Hill the Steven Soderbergh film I actually really do like that movie from him and the war room the documentary about Bill Clinton's run to the presidency and kind of the behind the scenes of the communications and everything about that campaign made James Carville and George Stephanopoulos stars that's a really fascinating documentary as well so many good options to choose from if you are thinking about going back and revisiting the year 1993 somebody who's been through a lot of tough elections James Carville is known as the raising Cajun in the business. Let me tell you what's at stake in this election. It's about George Bush and the whole sleazy little cabal of them. You're going to get tax breaks for the wealthy. You're going to get a guy that doesn't know what a grocery store scanner is. I'm getting sick and tired. I am every single night. And that is our show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter slash X, Letterboxd, Threads, I don't know, where else are we? I think we're on Instagram. You can find us. Adam is at Film Spotting. I am at Larson on Film. How about you, Michael? Where can folks find you these days? Are, are you more of a Mastodon man or where are you hanging out? Not yet. You know, I'm still on. I will not give up the word Twitter for X because to say I'm still on X just sounds like, you you know, there's a there's a noun to be named later or something. But I don't know. Are you still using Twitter? You're obviously you just said it. So you are using. Yeah, we are. We're, we're hanging in there. It's um, it's an existential crisis for sure. But for now. <laughs> For now, you can find us there, and it sounds like you can find Michael as well. Phillips Tribune, right? That's yeah, that's where that's folks right. Phillips look. Tribune, and you know, if you want to, uh, you know, fight your way through the Tribune website, you can look at the ChicagoTribune.com/slash/movies, and you'll find me in and among all the various wire reviews from better-paying newspapers. Thank you. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, the current film spotting poll has us looking ahead to the fall movie season, and we want to make sure you're a part of that. So go ahead and vote for your most anticipated movie of the fall over at filmspotting.net. If you're interested in show t-shirts or other merch, you can go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film spotting is listener supported, and you can join the film spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. That way, for as little as five bucks a month, you can listen to the show early and ad free. Five bucks a, a month. Newsletter. Five bucks a month. I mean, listen. Month. You got to do it. You got to do it. Five bucks a month. Listen to this. I'm not even done with what you'd get that weekly newsletter and the opportunity to have monthly bonus shows or access the entire film spotting archive, including every show Michael Phillips has been a part of. <laughs> that is all at filmspottingfamily.com. In limited release this week, Birth Slash Rebirth, a single mother and a childless morgue technician are bound together by their relationship to a little girl they have reanimated from the dead. In wider release, we have Back on the Strip. This is about a wannabe magician who moves to Las Vegas and falls back on his previous occupation as a male stripper, Wesley Snipes, Kevin Hart, Tiffany Haddish all in that one. Blue Beetle is also out. A recent college grad becomes a reluctant superhero when he comes in possession of an ancient relic of alien biotechnology. Also in wide release, Landscape with Invisible Hand. This is a sci-fi satire from director Corey Finley, who made Thoroughbreds and Bad Education. You could always also go see Strays, the feature-length version of the movie trailer with the talking dogs. The voices of Will Ferrell and Jamie Foxx featured there. 
any of those on your to-do list that you reviewed, Michael, you can recommend or steer folks away from? You know, it's just uh, the quirk of timing, but I'm going to go see Strays tonight. So if you can just, if you want to just pause for a minute without turning off the uh, podcast uh, taping, why don't, why don't you just, why don't we just pause for like four hours and then I'm going to okay. go see it and then we can come back with a comment. Does I- that work? I will sit here in my closet. I, I, I may have died from the lack of oxygen after that time, but if not, I can't wait to hear what you have to say about strays. I did enjoy hearing what you had to say about the fugitive. It seemed like the perfect movie to have you on Michael. So thanks for filling in for Adam and, and coming to discuss it with me. Thank you. It was fun. And, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll come, I'll come, you know, join you in the closet or uh, anytime, Josh, you just have me back. You got it. Next week, Michael will be crafting that 16,000 word essay on strays. So he can't join me. Instead, I will have Mariah Gates come and we hope to discuss Emma Seligman's bottom still awaiting word for screening access to that one. We know we will be discussing risky business because it is its 40th anniversary. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.